When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Gen Anthro listeners. We wanted to let you know that you can now find our podcast in a new place, the Smithsonian's Anthropocene Hub. There you can explore more stories about the age of humans. To find the Anthropocene Hub, go to smithsonianmag.com. Under Science, click on the Age of Humans. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we talk about people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang, and today we are talking about the stuff we throw away. Call it trash, garbage, refuse, waste. All the stuff you deal with every day that you just don't want in your life. Apart from remembering when to drag out the bins to the curbside, mostly our trash stays out of sight, out of mind. So on today's show, we're going to explore what happens when we decide to follow our trash around. Where does it go? What happens to it? And what does our garbage say about who we are? Miles Chair brings us three stories. It's the middle of July and the room packed with around 100 people is getting really hot. The stage in front of me is lit with a single spotlight. The sun is setting just outside the window, and I can see the speakers practicing their presentations just off the left corner of the stage. The crowd is here for something called Odd Salon, a humorous lecture series held every other week in San Francisco over cocktails. Tonight, there are stories about mishaps in space, Maritime disasters, the world's largest accidental explosion, and a group of rubber ducks. I'd like to now welcome Isolde Honore to come up here and tell another ship story (laughs) about how an accident helped us understand ocean currents. Please welcome Isolde. I am going to continue the discussion on ships, but specifically I'm going to address lost cargo and what happens to it. Isolde begins her story talking about just how much cargo gets shipped around the globe. Turns out, it's a lot. She says that sometimes ships will hit particularly severe storms and the cargo containers will get washed overboard. So, 
what happens to all this stuff that washes overboard? To simplify it, three things happen. Number one, it sinks. Number two, it sinks slowly. The third thing that can happen, which is, I think, the most interesting, is if the cargo inside is buoyant, then ocean winds and currents will sweep them into ocean gyres and swirl them around in the ocean for an undetermined amount of time and then eventually deposit them on foreign shores, sometimes in very amusing fashions. She tells a story about thousands of bags of Doritos chips washing ashore in North Carolina and how in 1990... Oceanographers were able to use 60,000 Nike shoes lost at sea to track ocean currents. Now, another very exciting thing that happened for oceanography was in 1992, when a cargo container of bath toys was lost at sea. So a package of the first year's friendly floaties, each containing a duck, a turtle, a frog, and a beaver were lost at sea. Uh, there were s- over 7,000 packages that, that were sent floating, and very quickly the seawater opened up the glue, and then suddenly over 28,000 toys were swirling around on the ocean. And as soon as they started making landfall, people were, were really excited. Oh my gosh, adorable toys are, are showing up all over the world. This is great. Enter oceanographer Dr. Curtis Ebesmeyer. Isolde shows a picture of Curtis Ebesmeyer, now retired. He has short silver hair and a well-groomed beard. He's wearing wire-framed glasses that sit atop a huge, toothy smile. He pioneered a field called forensic flotsamology, uh, also known as flotsometrics. This idea that you could study the ocean based on the man-made things that are washing up ashore. Now, where did these ducks go? Well, frankly, everywhere. So, as you can see from all the swirling arrows on the slide, uh, they were lost in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific. Uh, Some swirled down, making landfall in the Philippines and and, uh, South America. And most of them swirled up and hit the west coast of the Americas. And some even trapped, some very, very brave bath toys even made it into the Arctic pack ice up over the northeastern passage and down to the Arctic. The first story that hit was in Sitka, Alaska in 1992 when hundreds of bath toys started to, to wash up. In 1994, the toys hit Sitka, Alaska again. And then the story started spreading and people started, started announcing to one another, oh, you know, look for those toys. And beachcombers around the world were looking for these toys and, and generating excitement about it. The toys keep washing up on Alaska's shores every three years or so. And Ebbesmeyer started looking into them. It was curiosity more than anything, but he also knew that there was an outside chance these ducks could help answer some big questions in the field of oceanography. He contacted a fellow scientist named Jim Ingram, who began to plug the data coming in from these bath toys into an ocean current simulation program. And uh, for the first projection, they found that the toys actually went a lot faster than the prediction happens. And there were a a lot of unknown variables in how to track these bath toys across the ocean. Uh, For for one thing, they didn't know how long it takes to complete a circuit in a gyre. That was a big oceanographical... uh, uh, That was a big unknown. (laughs) And uh, secondly, they had no way to project how debris would drift through the Arctic pack. That was also a big unknown. Isolde points out that this question, how long does it take a parcel of water to travel from Alaska to Hawaii to Japan and back to Alaska sounds simple, but it was a big unknown at the time. 
Ebbesmeyer and Ingram keep tweaking their model and notice that the ducks keep washing up every three years or so. Three years was the answer they've been looking for. And even more spectacularly, based on the dispersal patterns of all the ducks, they managed to prove that ocean gyres are not simply one simple vortex of swirling water as previously thought, but five or more interconnected suborbits that work like gears in a clock to rotate the whole thing around. Ooh, science! As Isolde starts to wrap up, she reiterates this point. Our trash taught us a lot about our oceans. I thought her talk was really funny, and for days after, I couldn't stop thinking about it. In a society that's increasingly interested in knowing where our products come from, our trash remains largely invisible. It's not that it has no value. It actually has negative value, because we don't want our trash sitting around in our backyards. When we throw something away, we're not just removing it from our home, but from our consciousness. But the rubber ducks raise an interesting question for me. What happens if we do look closely at our trash? What do we discover about our trash? What do we discover about our planet? And what can we learn about ourselves based on the things we leave behind? To help me answer this question, I looked around online for a little bit and found this guy, David Lee. Unfortunately, the phone connection wasn't great, so David's a little hard to hear. Hi, my name is David Lee. And on the Trash Track Project, I was one of the lead uh, developers and helped run the program over the last few years. David worked on this program called Trash Track, and it's run out of the Sensible City Lab at MIT. On the surface, the program's goal is simple. Tell the story of where our trash goes after we throw it into the bin. Very few of us know the full story of like where it goes after we throw it away. So we really wanted to track trash from the bottom up. The Trash Track team agreed to test their program with the city of Seattle, Washington. And the scale of the project grew quickly. Tracking trash isn't as simple as duct taping a GPS sensor to a paper cup. It has to survive the garbage truck, trash compactors, and close encounters with garbage juice. And the tracker has to be small, portable, and powerful enough to send a signal to the GPS network while buried under yet more garbage. After some experimentation, the team settled on two major questions that they hoped their project would answer. How far away does waste travel from where we throw it away? Uh, How predictable are the paths of different kinds of waste? And then the other question is, is recycling, is it actually a net benefit? Uh, Or does the cost of transporting waste outweigh some of those benefits? In Seattle, David and his team put out a message on Facebook inviting residents to participate in the Trash Track program. According to David, this is how it works. Uh, A couple of people show up at your door at that appointed time. Uh, They lay out a bunch of tarps on your living room or in your your garage. Uh, They end up photographing and cataloging all the waste that you've prepared. And then they take out a couple of uh, plastic containers filled with some strange liquid and they start mixing this uh, epoxy foam substance together. And then they take these little black tracking devices and they attach them to your old milk carton, to your old printer cartridge, to uh, your, your car tire. Uh, they use the foam to cover the object completely and this is both to hide its presence as well as protect it from moisture and some of the shocks that it will experience in the waste stream. Uh, while still allowing it to have a a GPS and a cell phone signal. 
uh, finally they tag all of your items, they let the stuff dry and harden, and then they ask you to just throw the object away as you normally would. David and his team track everything. They organize all our trash into 10 broad categories. Paper, plastics, metal, glass, textiles, rubbers and leathers, organic, generic waste, hazardous, and electronic waste. Then they follow each item on the GPS network. From our data, at least, the, the recyclable removal chain is pretty much what you'd expect. So that's papers, plastics, aluminum, glass, things that you normally would sort into separate bins. So say I'm in an aluminum can, I get tossed into the recycling bin at home, I get picked up by a truck and I get taken to a nearby transfer station, and then from there to a, the main recycling plant. So Seattle's main plant is in the South Industrial District, it's right by Seahawks Stadium. Uh, from there, I get crushed and packaged and sent to a reprocessing plant. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. But the removal chain for e-waste or hazardous waste, these were the most surprising. So these things travel much further than we had expected and uh, for a lot longer time than we had expected. David points me to a graphic that some of his data visualization team members created and posted on their website. It's basically a map of the U.S. with hundreds of lines starting in Seattle and curving across the country. These lines represent the travel paths of the trash. Most of the lines stay around Seattle, and they look like a firework with some arcs extending into the neighboring states of Oregon and Idaho. These lines represent papers, plastics, metals, and textiles. But then there are the green and orange lines, the hazardous and e-waste trash streams, these reach out huge distances, like arms of some giant neon octopus. And this is where things start to get weird. David mentioned seeing two specific printer cartridges that started in the same place, ultimately ended up in the same place, but took two radically different paths. We had two HP printer cartridges. As I mentioned, HP will recycle these. They have a plant down in Mexico uh, where they will refurbish these cartridges. Uh, so both of these left from Seattle around the same time, and they both ended up at that plant in Mexicali. Uh, but one of them takes a pretty direct route along the I-5 corridor. It seems like it went there by uh, truck or train, uh, and it got there fairly quickly. Basically, cartridge A took a straight path from Seattle down the West Coast and into Mexico. The other one took a really weird route all the way over to Chicago and then back down through the you know, southwest part of the U.S. into Mexico. So we're not really sure how it got to Chicago, why it went there, but we do know that it's a much greater distance that it traveled to just end up in the same place. The map is full of lines that look like this. Green arcs marked CFL, or batteries, that bounce from location to location like a stone skipping off a pond, ending up in Missouri or Georgia. And orange arcs, most of them marked cell phone, that end up traveling from Seattle to Texas or Florida. And while David and his team could track our trash across the country, he tells me that that's only part of the story. There's one other specific case that I thought was interesting for cardboard products, at least at the time in 2009. Uh, we did see some of these 
uh, items being taken to the ports and loaded onto container ships. And you could even see them at some point exiting the harbor. Uh, unfortunately, that was about as far as we could track because, as I mentioned, we could only track within the United States. But we do know that a lot of paper recycling goes to China, where there is a lot of demand for the material, uh, mainly to make more cardboard boxes to ship more consumer products back to the U.S. In other words, David and his team watched as our trash literally sailed away before distance killed its digital footprint. But they were able to see where our trash traveled, and they found that our recyclables, the papers, plastics, metals, and glass, tend to travel only short distances, meaning that recycling is indeed worth it. You know, these things don't travel that far. They don't travel so far that the transport costs would outweigh the benefits. But recycling isn't the only stuff we throw away. There were the strange travel paths taken by our e-waste. Again, what's the reason why something ended up going across the country twice to get to Mexico versus one that took a much more direct path? Uh, So this kind of research can raise those questions and and point out uh, maybe there are places where we can streamline these uh, these programs, especially something like electronic waste take-back, which is pretty fragmented and it's not really well regulated. In talking to David, I realized that I have no idea where my trash goes. But by following all of the objects, we can find better travel routes that use less energy and try to find out how to optimize our waste streams. The map of colorful lines in his team's analysis shows that paper cups, ink cartridges, and cardboard boxes managed to find themselves in some pretty strange places. And that got me thinking, where's the strangest place our trash has ended up? To help me answer this question, I make a phone call. Hi, Dakin. It's Miles. Hi, Miles. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. This is Dakin Hart. He's a curator at the Noguchi Museum in New York. He describes himself as a blue marble kid, someone who was really affected by that famous photo of Earth as seen from the moon. I wanted to speak to Dakin because apart from being a museum curator, he's also tracked trash in a particularly unusual place. That's one small step for man. Dakin created a website with a brilliant title, Trash on the Moon. I think it it really came gradually because, um, I mean, just the phrase came to me, Trash on the Moon. And then I started searching around for information about Trash on the Moon. Because it's a government organization, all of NASA's records from the moon landings are open to the public. Dakin went through hundreds to thousands of pages over who knows how many days, weeks, months, or years. At the very beginning, I wasn't really thinking of it as trash. I hadn't in my mind labeled it as trash. And and I used trash in a kind of non-judgmental, super expansive way to just mean everything that human beings have left on the moon. And when I added it all up, I came to, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 178,000 kilograms or in the neighborhood of 400,000 pounds. Were you surprised when you learned that number? That's a huge number. Yeah, absolutely. No, I was blown away, and um, I immediately started trying to understand what, kind of what that meant. Before we got to the objects themselves, I asked Aiken why he was so interested in these objects in particular. 
I love all the stuff that we make because um, every object that is produced by our culture, by human culture, um, anywhere on the planet, um, says an enormous amount. Is a prism, you know, it's a it's a, a gateway, a doorway, a window um, onto who we are, and and again, what we value, what we think about, um, what's meaningful to us, and um, each each one of them can tell or can be the excuse for telling an amazing human story. At this point. I asked Dakin what these objects really were. I mean, what did we leave behind on the surface of the moon? Apollo 11, um, they took with them a small gold um, replica of an olive branch. You know, they, they wanted that to tr- transcend politics and represent the planet and represent peace in the future for the planet. So, you know, it's hard to get much better than that. Then at the same time, every NASA mission dumped all of the, the contents of the, the toilet, basically, in plastic bags. And those are on the landing sites um, for every Apollo mission. So I think I, calc- I tried to add them all up from all of these inventories. And I think the number I came up with was 96, that there are 96 bags of urine and feces that we abandoned on the moon. An olive branch and bags of poop. This is the start of a strange portrait of trash we've left behind. Dakin tells me about other things, too. About 50 crash spacecraft. About a medal honoring Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. About nail clippers and empty space food packaging. He tells me about anything and everything the astronauts could throw away to save weight for their return journey. Another really good example is all of the scientific packages. What you don't see when they were unpacked, it was like uh, Christmas, you know, with a lot of kids, uh, like a bunch of four or five-year-old boys, and they just went tearing through these things, and some of them just flinging the trash everywhere. So it really looks like um, Christmas Christmas Day around 2 p.m. with the, the contents of all of these packages scattered hither and yon. It's not just the objects that interest Dakin. He's intrigued by how the astronauts treated these things. Throwing packaging around like a kid on Christmas morning is just one example. He starts to show me a side of the moon that I had never really seen before. And my friends will tell you, that's hard to do. I love space. Dakin wants to read me a transcript from one of the Apollo missions, Apollo 12, the second time we landed on the moon. So I thought, I don't know, is it, is it worth reading one of those? They're, they're hilarious and wonderful and magical and, again, kind of perfectly combine um, the best and the worst of space exploration American style. I, I would love it. Yeah, if you have an excerpt in front of you, please. Okay, so this, this is one from uh, an Apollo 12 mission transmission. Um, so I'll read the names of the people speaking um, before I read the, the quotes. It's not very long. Conrad, here's this rock right here. Let me give the surveyor's tool, the bolt cutters, a heave. Here's this rock right here. Let me uh, give the uh, surveyor's tool a heave. Bean, okay. Conrad, we don't need it for anything, do we? Bean, Houston? Houston, we don't need the surveyor's tool anymore, do we? If you've got the uh, TV back in the uh, lamp already cut off, then uh, there's no more need for it. Bean, okay. Conrad, 
that LM, that TV's being Adios, Tool. And that's it. Adios, Tool. I didn't get it at first. And you know <laughs> that with Adios, Tool, what he was doing in 1-6 Graffiti, they could throw stuff a long way. Every one of these guys could do that on the moon. And they could do it with big, heavy tools. And not only could they throw it 90 feet, they could throw it two or three times that. So they, you can tell from the transcripts, they just could not get enough of chucking tools. So, and because of the, sort of the, the, the mission parameters, um, shedding weight was a major um, priority. So anything that they were done with, mission control gave them permission to get rid of. And the way to get rid of it, again, was to chuck it as far as you possibly could. So all those, there are a bunch of great phrases, but Audio's tool is one of my absolute favorites. Hurtling these tools around with reckless abandon reveals a lot about the astronauts. They're pretty much just big kids. But the more I talk with Dakin, the more stories I hear. Astronauts leaving feathers on the moon as a testament to their college mascot. People leaving photos and tiny sculptures. But I keep coming back to this bigger question. What do we learn when we follow these objects with the most extreme travel path? Every piece of trash on the moon is a, um, a testament to human ingenuity and um, human um, passion and determination and intellect um, and in great NASA spirit. I mean, what is amazing about it is that it covers sort of the whole range of human activity. Um, you know, every, the sacred and the profane, the high and the low, it expresses our kind of highest ideals and then our most sophomoric, um, idiotic, small-mindedness um, at the same time. I mean, the, the most wonderful thing about NASA is the seat-of-the-pants engineering. You know, it's so easy to forget that NASA is not Ford or GM. They're not on their 10 millionth copy of something. That pretty much everything they made, almost every one of these things was more or less unique. There, there's something about that that's so noble that I think for me it really overwhelms. After listening to Dakin, I try to think back to the stories that I heard from Isolde and David. And I start to think about trash a little differently. The stuff that we throw away doesn't disappear exactly. Not even from our consciousness. We've managed to reimagine the lives of people in ancient Greece and ancient Rome from bits of things that they threw away. We've learned about languages and the earliest examples of mathematics from discarded receipts. In a world where we're increasingly proud of the things we build, it's our trash that says the most about us, about our consumptive habits, and about our ambitions. As Dakin said, these items are a prism, a gateway, a window onto who we are, what we value, what we think about, and what's meaningful to us. Maybe that's the story of our trash. Maybe if aliens discover Earth and go sifting through our garbage, these are the stories that they'll tell about us as a species. And then they'll wonder what the hell a rubber duck is.
That's it for the show this week. Our show is produced by Miles Traer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Special thanks this week to Odd Salon for letting us use the audio of Isolde's story. If you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out one of their shows sometime. You can find the schedule of their upcoming shows at oddsalon.com. That's O-D-D-S-A-L-O-N.com. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.